Good morning, everyone. We have uh, just celebrated Christ, our high priest, and the songs we've sung. And that is where we want to go this Lord's Day as we anticipate uh, partaking of the Lord's Supper in celebration of Christ, who is indeed our great high priest. To that end, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 2, you might immediately think, hmm, uh, 1 Samuel 2, Christ our high priest, that's going to take a stretch. Um, No, you will see that this text does indeed lead us to the Lord Jesus and does indeed compel us to celebrate Christ as the one who has not only accomplished our greatest salvation at Calvary's cross, but has ascended on high to make eternal intercession on behalf of his people, his bride, his church. So turn with me to 1 Samuel 2. And also, if you received a bulletin on the way in, I hope you did, you can open it up. And on the inside cover, you will find sermon notes. And so the purpose of these is for you, you guessed it, to take notes. Uh, I can put the word in your mouth, but you must digest it. And uh, the Spirit of God must implant it deep within. And so these notes serve that purpose, that function. And as I read 1 Samuel chapter 2 from verse 11 uh, through to chapter 3 verse 1, uh, take note of the outline at the very top of the sermon notes. Very important to observe the shift back and forth in this text from Samuel, the emphasis on Samuel, to an emphasis on Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And so we begin with Samuel, verse 11 of 1 Samuel 2. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy, as Samuel, ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the narrative shifts over to Eli's sons. And in verses 12 through 17, we have a great sin diagnosed. Verse 12, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh. To all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men, that's Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Now the narrative jumps back. Where? To Samuel, verses 18 through 21. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother, that's Hannah, used to make for him a little robe, And take it to him each year when she went up and her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children 
by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now you guessed it. The narrative jumps back to Eli's sons. And in verses 22 through 25, we have a weak rebuke, unheeded, or downright ignored. Verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing that all his sons were were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the narrative jumps back to Samuel, verse 26. Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Now the narrative immediately jumps back to Eli's sons for the third time, a terrible judgment foretold. Verse 27, And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus the Lord has said that I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh, that I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me. I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn? My sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded, and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go on, should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out. To grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. Now notice verse 35. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. And now the narrative goes back to Samuel, chapter 3, verse 1. Now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. And so as we read the text, we are left with the definite impression that the author wants to convey to us what? A contrast. A sharp, distinct, marked contrast. On the one hand, we have Samuel, 
who ministers before the Lord, in the presence of the Lord. On the other hand, we have Eli's sons who show downright contempt for the Lord. That is the thrust of the narrative, the text, these verses, as the author seeks to lay before us this sharp contrast between what Samuel is and is becoming and what Eli's sons are. So how are we going to approach the verses? What are we going to try to glean from them? I'm going to follow the, the outline that I introduced two Sundays ago. So if you were here two Sundays ago, you might remember this. If you weren't here, here it is very simply. As a matter of fact, it's there in the sermon notes. You'll see in bold print four headings, one, two, three, four. Here's how we are to approach the Old Testament. Uh, this is how we are to approach 1 Samuel chapter 2. Uh, whenever we turn to the Old Testament scriptures, we look for four things. And if we look for these four things, we'll stay on course. We'll do all right. Let me just give them to you right at the outset, and then we'll go back and fill in all the intervening blanks between the four. First of all, when we go to the Old Testament, and so when we go to 1 Samuel 2, we look for examples that instruct us. And so Paul writes, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, as 1 Corinthians 10. So when we go to the Old Testament, we're looking for examples that instruct us. Secondly, we're looking for truths that encourage us. Again, the words of the Apostle Paul, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. That's Romans 15. So that's the second thing we're looking for. Truths that encourage us, uh, comfort us, uh, strengthen us. Thirdly, when we turn to the Old Testament, we look for the Messiah. Because the Lord Jesus himself declared in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is these that bear witness or testify of me. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 2, who are we looking for? We're looking for the Lord Jesus Christ. And thirdly, when we turn to the Old Testament, we look for the gospel. Why? Because Paul says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.15, from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, that's the Old Testament, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So it's very simple. At least I don't think there's anything very complicated about it. We turn to any text in the Old Testament, the one we have in view, the verses I read in 1 Samuel chapter 2. And we search for, we mine for uh, these four things. And so we begin with number one. We're looking for examples that instruct us. And so what instruction do we receive from this text by way of example? Uh, let me suggest three. There are three key examples in this text for our instruction. Things we're to learn from. The first is this. Instruction number one by way of example. It is, it is possible to be close to the church yet far from God. That's an obvious one, isn't it? We learned that from Eli's sons. It is possible to be close to the church, yet light years, let me insert, away from God. It is possible to be close to the church, yet far from God. We learned that from the example of Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons. In case you missed it. These men are priests. What does that mean? That means they minister in the tabernacle, serve the Lord in the tabernacle. That means they offer the sacrifices. 
That means they celebrate the feasts. That means these men sleep, drink, eat, breathe religion. These men are immersed in religion. And yet what do we read in verse 12 of 1 Samuel 2? Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. There's the example. It is possible to be godly. It is possible to be close, rather, to the church, yet far from God. Their godlessness, their worthlessness, or that we might translate that, that expression as vile. These, these vile men, it, their sin is evident in two things. And the text points us in these two directions. Firstly, from verse 12 through 17, it shows us that they treat God's offerings with contempt. And so you go back and you read Leviticus chapter 7, and there in Leviticus chapter 7, the rules are clear that when it comes to sacrifices, the priests are entitled to certain portions of those sacrifices, like a shoulder or something like that, to sustain themselves, to feed on. But what were these priests doing? They were taking whatever they wanted. They were disregarding those rules and regulations governing the nation's offerings and sacrifices, thereby showing complete contempt and disregard for the offering of the Lord. And the second way in which we see their vileness or worthlessness comes out in verses 20 through 25. They're guilty of what? Gross sexual immorality. And not only gross sexual immorality, but when confronted with their sin from their father, Eli, uh, they're guilty of breaking the fifth commandment, aren't they? They just ignore the old man. They pay no attention to him. They do not heed him at all. They turn a deaf ear to him. And so here we have these two men close to the tabernacle, immersed in religion, priests by vocation who are actually worthless men. Why? Look at the next expression in verse 12. Here's the problem. They did not know the Lord. They knew about the Lord, but they did not know the Lord. They did not know his power. Therefore, they did not fear him. They did not know his knowledge and his wisdom. Therefore, they did not trust him. They knew nothing of his goodness. Therefore, they did not love him. They did not know the Lord. And they went through this external adherence to to Israel's religion, involved themselves in all that religiosity, all of those sacrifices, all of those feasts, and yet in actual fact, they are worthless men who do not know the Lord. The example is obvious. It is possible to be close to the church, yet far from God. Uh, The question it begs of us is this. Do you know God? I did not ask, do you know about God? I asked, do you know God? Uh, that, That question is relevant for some of our children here. You boys and girls, you waken right up, perk right up. That question is for you. Do you know God? You've been coming here five, six, seven years faithfully, large part maybe just because mom and dad bring you. you. Your parents' faith, it will not be transferred to you. You will not observe your parents, you will not obtain to your parents' knowledge of the Lord. You will not absorb just by chance your parents' faith in the Lord. The day must come, kids, when you internalize what you already know about God. The day must come when you take it to heart to fear the Lord's name. 
When you take his great power to heart and you fear him. You take his great wisdom and knowledge to heart and you trust him. And you take his great goodness to heart as displayed at Calvary's cross through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you love him. And so that question is for some of our children, isn't it? Do you know God? That question is also for some of our young people. Um, I pray not many, but some. You're faking it. You've been faking it a long time. Not fooling anybody. You're faking it. And um, you said a prayer when you were five years old. Maybe you were baptized when you were seven years old. And you dutifully come along. And yet uh, you're living a double life. Um, you're here on Sunday and everything looks to be pretty good. Uh, Monday to Saturday, excuse the expression. Well, I don't apologize for it. All hell breaks loose. Monday to Saturday. Do you know God? I'm not asking if you can recite John 3.16. I'm not asking if you said a prayer when you're five years old. I'm not asking if you've been baptized. I am asking, do you know the living God? Uh, some of our adults need to hear that question. Uh, do you know God? Some adults go to church dutifully, have faithfully for years. Um, why wouldn't I go to church? That's what Sunday's for. Church and football, Right? So I, I, go, I go to church. I live in Texas. Everybody goes to church. I've always gone to church. Do you know God? Do we know God like Hannah knows God? You go back earlier in this chapter, if you were here last Sunday, this is by way of review, and look at what Hannah says in verse 1, 1 Samuel 2. My heart exults in the Lord. Do we know God like Hannah knows God? And look at what she celebrates in the second verse. She celebrates his incomparable holiness. There is none holy like the Lord. She celebrates his unmatched greatness. There is none besides you. She celebrates his unrivaled power. There is no rock like our God. She celebrates his unsearchable knowledge. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge. And she celebrates his unquestionable justice, and by him actions are weighed. Let me repeat the lesson, the example. It is possible to be close to the church, yet far from God. And it begs this most obvious question, do we know second example, by way of instruction, is this. It is possible to be godly in the midst of ungodliness. Samuel teaches us that, doesn't it? Doesn't that little boy? It is possible to be godly in the midst of ungodliness. Go back to verse 11 of chapter 2, the second half of the verse. And the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. Now look at verse 18. Samuel was ministering before the Lord. Now look at verse 21, the very last statement. And the young man, something changed there. What changed? He's no longer a, a boy. Samuel is growing up. And the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Verse 26, now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And now chapter 3, verse 1. Now the young man, so he's gone from being a boy to a young man, maybe 12, 13 years of age. Samuel was ministering to the Lord 
under Eli. Here's the lesson. It is possible to be godly in the midst of ungodliness. Take note. Let's consider the facts. Samuel is is young, maybe four or five years of age when he goes up to Shiloh. Uh, By the end of this text, maybe 12, 13 years of age. Uh, He's young. He's separated from his parents. He only sees them maybe once a year when they come up dutifully to offer their sacrifices, maybe on the Day of Atonement. And Hannah brings that little, uh, that little robe, that little garment she's uh, sewn for him. Not only is he separated from his parents, is he young? Uh, Samuel is surrounded by apostasy. What's the context for the book of 1 Samuel? It is the book of Judges. How does the book of Judges end? In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. He lives in a day of widespread apostasy. Not only that, he ministers alongside whom? Eli's sons. What does that little boy see? I cringe to think. He knows what those two are up to. He knows they're worthless men. He knows they show absolute, utter contempt for God. He sees their sin going on unchecked, surrounded by those examples, poor examples. And not only that, who does Samuel have as a mentor? Eli. I don't want to be too harsh on Eli. But let's face it, the man is kind of inept, right? We're certainly left with that impression after reading it. You don't want to speak ill of the dead, and God spare me from following in the footsteps of Eli. But he is, spade a spade, right? He is inept. This is Samuel's upbringing. This is his boyhood. And yet what do we see? Godliness in the midst of ungodliness. That's an example for us to emulate, an example for us to follow. It is possible to be godly. In the midst of ungodliness. Let me apply it in two ways. It is true for our students here. And it's true for our employees, our our workers, men, women who are in the workplace, out there, the workforce. Uh, That is true. It is possible to be godly in the midst of ungodliness. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking. Stephen, that's easy for you to say. You walk around here all day. And you rub shoulders with Chris and Rick and Brian well, that's no cup of tea. That's got its own challenges. But I, Rick especially, he's just an eye shot there. But uh, no, it's true. I thank God for it every day. I thank God for these men every day. I thank God for being able to serve in this environment every day. Maybe the Lord knows my weaknesses. Maybe the Lord knew I had to be in such a place in order to survive. I don't know. And so I do thank him for it. But I do remember high school. I do remember seventh grade, eighth grade, right up through high school. I do remember the college campus. And I do remember some of the jobs I had after I graduated from university. I do remember the sense of humor. It was downright shocking. I I do remember the attitude toward work and life in general and everything else as being downright negative. I I do remember just the, the, the oppressive environment of living day in, day out, surrounded by those who were so far from spiritual things, so far from God. I I do remember interacting daily with those whose whose goal in life extended nothing beyond alcohol consumption and sexual experimentation. I do remember. And I, I am conscious of the fact, and I hope we're conscious of the fact, that in our congregation we have men and women who walk in that environment every single day, whether it's in the school, the campus, the work environment, and it is oppressive. 
here's a mighty example for you, brother. Here's a mighty example for you, sister. It is possible to be godly in the midst of ungodliness. How? Key phrase. Key phrase is found there. Well, really, it's used a few times. It's stated most clearly at the end of verse 21. And the young man Samuel grew. Where? In the presence of the Lord. I think back now. We were in 2 Timothy 4.1. And I preached a sermon called Coram Deo. Meaning what? To live before God's face. To live in God's presence. To live Coram Deo. Is to have a deep sense of God's majesty. A deep sense of God's mercy. Whereby we fear to offend him. And long to please him. That's how Samuel lives. He lives daily in the presence of the Lord. He lives daily Coram Deo. His God is whose God? Hannah's God. His God is Elkanah's God. And even in the midst of a nation that is apostatized, even in the midst of a priesthood which is downright corrupt, even associated, affiliated with a family where their sons can only be described as worthless men, Samuel is growing. Samuel is maturing. Samuel is increasing in godliness. What a wonderful, encouraging example for us. It is possible to be godly in the midst of ungodliness. The third example is this. Third example that instructs us. It is possible to say the right words in the wrong way. What do I mean by that? It is possible to say the right words in the wrong way. I'm referring, of course, to Eli. You go back and you take a glance at verses 22 through 25. And um, what do we see Eli doing? Well, we see him confronting his sons. And he really does two things and does them quite well. He, um, he identifies his son's sin. He, he names it. He points it out based on what he had been hearing. So he confronts them with their sin. And not only that, he confronts them with the consequences of their sin. And so grasp this. This is the example we must grasp. This is invaluable for our, for our instruction. There is nothing wrong. There is no problem with what Samuel says. The problem is what Samuel does. What does he do? Nothing. That's the problem. His words were right. His rebuke was correct. He pinpointed their sin. He pointed them to the consequences of their sin. But then he stood idly by and did nothing. Turn over just for a moment to chapter 3. This is made abundantly clear in this chapter, verse 13. The Lord is speaking. I declare to him... This is to Eli, that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God. Here's the problem, right at the end of the verse. And he did not restrain them. The words were not enough. Eli had it within his power. He had it by authority. He had it by parental right. He had it by his position as as the high priest, as a judge within the nation of Israel. He could have and should have kicked Hophni and Phinehas out of the priesthood. Not only that, he should have brought them up under God's law and seen that they were punished to the fullest extent of the law governing the nation of Israel. What did he do? 
He spoke the right words, but stood idly by and did absolutely nothing. There's an invaluable lesson for us by way of example. It is possible to say the right words in the wrong way. I'm fairly certain I've used this example here before. Pardon me, but it's, it's a good one. It serves the purpose. Um, you parents, you imagine that uh, your son, in my case, my daughter, uh, breaks a bone, and down we rush to the, the hospital, uh, the emergency room. And uh, there we are all frantic beside ourselves into the emergency room, <laughs> carrying him, her, whatever. The doctor takes one look. You know, the bone's going the other way. Uh, yep, it's broken. I'm going to have to set it and put a plaster on it, right, a cast, uh, to which we respond, boy, when you set it, is it going to hurt him? And the doctor's response, yeah, like the Dickens. Our response, don't do it. I love my boy too much. I love my daughter too much to see you hurt him. That doctor would think we were crazy, absolutely crazy. The principle holds true for the realm of the home, and it holds true for the realm of the church. That discipline is a means of grace appointed by God. And discipline has a specific function, role, in the plan of God and in the dispensing of his grace through the gospel. When discipline is rightly applied, rightly applied, big if, when it is rightly applied, it sends a very clear, succinct message. What is that message? Firstly, sin is rebellion against God. It sends that message loud and clear. It sends the message that sin is serious. And it sends the message that sin has what? Consequences. Uh, Eli said all that to his sons. But his words fell ineffectual. Why? Because he did not back it up with action. What an important lesson for us. It is possible to say the right words in the wrong way when it comes to administering discipline. Again, let me repeat it. It holds true in the home. It holds true in the church. We must embrace this truth, this reality, that discipline itself is a God-appointed means of grace by which he sends this message, sin is rebellion against God, sin is serious, sin has consequences. And when the Spirit of God gets a hold of that message, what does it create in the heart and mind of the individual? Poverty of spirit. It produces what? Conviction. The full sense of the weight of their sin and its gravity and seriousness before God. In that state, what do they start to look for? What do we start to look for? Grace. Forgiveness. And we find it where? In the gospel. In God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So there are three examples that instruct us from 1 Samuel 2. It's possible to be close to the church yet far from God. It's possible to be godly in the midst of ungodliness. It's possible to say the right words in the wrong way. Secondly, what are we looking for? We're looking for truths that encourage us. Encourage us. There are a number in this text. I'm going to focus on only one because it is a recurring theme. We touched on it last Sunday. Here it is again. The importance of living under God's providence. Hannah teaches us that. Hannah teaches us early in this chapter that it is God who makes poor, it is God who makes rich. It is God who takes life, it is God who gives life. 
It is God who makes a woman barren. It is a God who gives, it is God who gives children. It is God who blesses. It is God who curses. It is God who does all of these things. Why? She declares it wonderfully. For the pillars of the earth belong to the Lord. It is the doctrine of his absolute sovereignty whereby he rules over his creation and his will is done in heaven and on earth. That is a truth that shouldn't frighten us. It isn't a truth that should perplex us. It is a truth that should impart wonderful comfort and encouragement. Why? Because it reminds us that as we, as we walk life, and as we pass through valleys and mountaintops, and as we experience what can only be described as prosperity and adversity, we have this absolute certainty that our lives are not victim to haphazard forces at work randomly in the universe, but all things serve an ultimate end and purpose as appointed by a great God. And so we wrestle away. And we struggle away. And we find ourselves in a dark place. And yet we celebrate and we hold on to for dear life to two unquestionable truths. The first is this, God's sovereignty. We always, brothers and sisters, we always know the answer to the question who. It is always God. And we hold on to what? Secondly, God's incomprehensibility. We don't always know. As a matter of fact, we rarely know. The answer to the question, why? He is an incomprehensible God. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. His judgments are unsearchable. And his ways are inscrutable. And so we've all been on a plane, most of us anyway. And so you're up at DFW, and you're on the plane, and you're taxiing out to the runway. I fly Air Canada, and I can't remember which terminal they're in when I fly from Dallas to Toronto, but it's, uh, boy, the, tax, the taxiing out to the runway is almost as long as the flight. It's miles. It takes about 15, 20 minutes, and you're just kind of sitting there going along, and as I, you know, have my window seat staring out the window, <coughs> I see Lufthansa and KLM and American Airlines and United. I see a bunch of planes, right? And I see men waving those orange things frantically, directing things, and other men putting baggage and mail and meals on planes. And I look around in the cabin of the, uh, of the plane, see maybe a dozen heads, a little video screen in front of me. That's it. My vision is limited. And yet I have every confidence that there is a man or a woman called an air traffic controller up in the tower who sees what? Everything. Every plane on the ground at that moment and where those planes are heading Every plane in the air at that moment, and from that vantage point, that air traffic controller can see everything where everything is going and how it fits together. There I sit in economy in the airplane, and I don't have a clue. That's God's sovereignty, friends. That is God's incomprehensibility. God knows, hear this phrase, this is wonderfully assuring. God knows all things by one infinite act of understanding. And he controls all those things. C.H. Spurgeon celebrated this truth. It is a matter of rejoicing that God has one great purpose that extends through all ages and embraces all things. That is a truth that greatly encourages me. The third thing we're looking for in this text is the Messiah. 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Christ declared, John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. How do we see the Messiah in this chapter? Look at verse 26. I'm going to read it slowly. And you search your memory banks and, and, and ask yourself, this, does this, doesn't this sound like something I've heard somewhere before? Now the young man Samuel continued to grow, both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. It's Luke chapter 2, verse 52, where we read the following. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. The words are exactly the same. You see, Samuel is a Christ figure. Samuel's miraculous birth created a sense of expectancy for a far greater miraculous supernatural birth, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Samuel's boyhood also creates a sense of expectancy for someone far greater And so Samuel's growth, his maturity before the Lord, points to, prepares for, creates a sense of anticipation for someone else who will grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And so again, the words of Luke 2, 52, Jesus increased in wisdom. That's the one word that's different that's inserted in Luke and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now, why does Luke mention the fact? Why does he mention this fact? Um, After this this mention of of Christ's boyhood and his his maturity, his growing, there's 18 years of silence. Uh, Why mention this? And why end his boyhood with this point? Why specifically mention the fact that he grows in wisdom and in stature? Think through it. Wisdom and stature. Wisdom and stature. Wisdom belongs to the realm of the soul. It's the mind, the intellect. Stature belongs to the realm of the body. What is Luke conveying? As a matter of fact, what does Luke convey? Not only in that verse, Luke 2.52, but in his entire book. He is conveying and emphasizing what? The humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, is a real man with a real human nature, consisting of mind and body, soul and body. And he grew in wisdom and in stature. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, wasn't he God? How can he grow in wisdom? Yes, Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully man. But we must always recognize that these two natures remain distinct in one person. The properties are not transferred. The divine was never hungry nor was the human ever omniscient. The divine never slept, right? Nor did the human ever exercise infinite power. You have the two natures, fully God, fully man, distinct in the one person. And here the emphasis, Luke is drawing us to the emphasis on Christ's humanity, that he grew in wisdom, that is in his soul, his mind, his development. He grew in body, that is in stature. And then he adds this wonderful phrase, that he grew in favor with, God! Why is that so significant? For the following reason. That Christ perfectly, hear these words, Christ perfectly fulfilled what God 
had made man to be. That's the significance of the verse. Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, fully fulfilled, completely fulfilled, perfectly fulfilled what God had made man to be. It was confirmed at the time of his baptism. At the time of the baptism, we see the triune God. Three persons, not three manifestations. Three persons. One substance, one being. We have the incarnate Son of God emerging from the Jordan River. There's the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We have the Spirit of God descending like a dove. Why a dove? Law of first reference. Where does your mind go? Back to Noah's flood. What does Noah release from the ark after the, as the floodwaters are subsiding? He releases a dove three times before the dove can find a place to set, to set and to rest, and, and, and she doesn't return to the ark. And now we have the Spirit of God, after the Lord Jesus has passed through, symbolically speaking, the waters of God's judgment in the Jordan River, symbolizing his baptism in God's judgment at Calvary's cross, we have the Spirit of God now descending, pointing to God's favor with Christ. And then it's confirmed by the voice of the Father himself. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. In the Lord Jesus Christ, this is so important. In the Lord Jesus Christ, we have one who is fully man. He is a real man. He is a perfect man. One who perfectly fulfilled what God had made man to be. Samuel creates that expectancy. And the fourth thing we're looking for, it builds on the third. The third, we look for Christ. The fourth, we look for the gospel. And where do we find the gospel? Well, in verse 27, God sends a prophet to Eli. Uh, Eli rebuked his sons mildly, I suppose we could say. The prophet now rebukes Eli sharply. And he tells him, as a consequence of your sin, your son's sin, and the fact that you are complicit in their sin by not restraining them, here's what's going to happen. Uh, God is going to rip the priesthood from your family. And so the Levites, Levi the son of Jacob, the Levites were set, Levites were set apart by God to minister to God. Within the tribe of Levi, you had Aaron, the high priest, his sons to minister specifically as priests. It was through one of the sons of Aaron that you had the high priest. And so Eli is the high priest. And God tells him through his prophet, this is the judgment, this is the curse that will fall, that because of your sin, because of your contempt for me, because of this great blasphemy that has been committed, I will rip the priesthood from your family. And the sign that this is going to come true is your two sons will be killed on the same day. Hophni and Phinehas. That is judgment. And yet in the midst of that terrible judgment, we find a merciful promise. Look at verse 35. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. That is a prophecy. When we approach prophecy in Scripture, you look for two things. You look firstly for an immediate fulfillment. There's always an immediate context. And you look secondly for the final fulfillment. The immediate fulfillment is a man named 
Zadok. David's on his deathbed. Solomon is heir to the throne. One of Solomon's half-brothers, Adonijah, decides he's going to make a run for the throne. He gets Joab, the commander of the army, and he gets Abiathar, the high priest, to support him. Because of his rebellion, Solomon passes judgment upon, yes, Joab and Abiathar, the great high priest, who is the direct descendant of Eli. And he banishes him from the priesthood, and he makes Zadok the great high priest in place of Abiathar. That was the immediate fulfillment. But it points to something far greater, doesn't it? It points to something of far greater magnitude and significance. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house. And he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Brothers and sisters, that is the Lord Jesus Christ who is the faithful priest who is our great high priest. His office of priest corresponds to the office of great high priest under the old covenant. The great high priest basically did two things. Firstly, he killed the animal, sacrificed the animal, shed its blood outside of the holy place. And then secondly, he took that blood and he entered into the holy place. And in so doing, he secured God's forgiveness. He made atonement for sin. Christ's priesthood is exactly the same. There are two great works associated with his priesthood. Firstly, he offers his sacrifice on earth. He offers up himself to his Father to make atonement on behalf of his people. At Calvary's cross, he bears the full weight, the full judgment, the full wrath of God as he is forsaken on behalf of his people. That is the first part of his great high priestly work on earth as he offered himself for sinners. And then the second aspect component of his great high priestly work is what? He has now entered into the holy place. He has now entered beyond the veil. He has now entered into the very throne room of God where he lives forevermore to intercede on behalf of his people. This is wonderful. Why? Because you see, his work at the cross is only half of his work. His prayer in heaven is the other half of his work. And his intercession, we see his intercession, we catch a glimpse of it in John 17. Christ's intercession, Christ's prayer right now at the right hand of the Father on behalf of all those whom the Father has given him guarantees, absolutely guarantees the application of all that he accomplished at Calvary's cross. Nothing can change it. Nothing can alter it. Nothing can impede it. Nothing can come in the way of it. So Paul celebrates that great reality of Romans 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Now hear this. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is now at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. You see, he is the faithful priest who goes in and out before the Lord. He is the great high priest who has offered himself on earth 
and has now entered into the very throne room of heaven on high to make eternal intercession on behalf of all his people. And the question is this, what then can separate us from the love of God? Absolutely nothing. That brings us to the Lord's Supper. You're wondering how we were going to get there from 1 Samuel 2. It brings us there. It brings us there through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we look now at these emblems, and I hope they take on even greater significance. Why, why am I taking part of this, 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 this bread and this cup? What's going on here? We're celebrating our great high priest. We're remembering his person. We're remembering his work. We're celebrating what he's doing right now on our behalf, and we're anticipating his soon return. And so bow with me as I lead us in prayer before God and we seek his, his blessing upon our participation of the emblems that are before us. Our Father, we celebrate the great salvation that you have accomplished for us. We praise you for the Lord Jesus, our prophet, priest, and king. In this supper, we remember him. In this supper, we proclaim his death until he comes again. In this supper, we celebrate your eternal love, boundless grace, and infinite compassion. In this supper, we receive assurance of life, pardon, adoption, and glory. As the bread and wine nourish our bodies, may the Holy Spirit indeed nourish our souls. We ask it in Christ's beloved name. Amen.